Good afternoon, everyone. It's good afternoon already. So on the way back on Friday, um, flew out from Vic Falls and then jumped into a plane in Johannesburg and flew overnight to South Africa and got to wrestle the word. One of the, the things that I brought back from Zimbabwe with me was flu. And so my head was not all that clear. It's not all that clear today. So if I say something that I shouldn't, just you can give me an excuse today. I've got a free pass today. Okay. But um, I really wrestled with this text from Acts chapter 3 in the aeroplane. It's from verse 11 to, to 26. It's, the context is from what Wayne preached on last week about um, the man that was crippled, that was healed at the gate, beautiful. And then, and then what happens after that? So he's healed. He's rejoicing and praising God. But what happens after that's taken place? Peter stands up to preach. And it's, this preach effectively was a text that I had. And, and I think the wrestle was in part my flu. The other part of it was the fact that um, there's actually, it's not that there's nothing in this passage, that there's so much in this passage to try and pull out. It's an extraordinary piece of scripture. It's all scripture is, so much for us to, to dive into. And so I'm going to read it, try and unpack it for a bit. I'm going to set my time, although I don't know what the point, because I just turn it off when it goes off anyway and carry on. But no, I will stop. We, are, we will be done, because I want at the end to land with communion. Elements are out there. We'll hand them out later. And I want two things to happen out of communion this morning. I want those that are not yet in a saving relationship with Christ to use communion as a doorway to come into that relationship with God, which I'll explain at the end. And I want those that are sick here this morning, and I include myself in that, but I, but I especially am thinking of those who have got serious illnesses or diseases, to trust God as we break bread together, that, that the covenant blessings that flow from what Christ accomplished on the cross which is what those symbolize would come into our lives as well and, um, and heal us, not just physically, but emotionally as well for those that are needing healing in that area. Sound good? Good. For the six of you that agreed with me, that's amazing. For the rest of you, I hope it's going to be good anyway. So Acts chapter 3, let's read from verse 11. While he, the man that had been healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, when he saw that they had gathered, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or stare at us as though by our own power or piety, which just means godliness, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets uh, long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, speaking obviously of Jesus. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who had spoken from Samuel and all those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What a scene. This man has been healed as we said already, this, this radical healing, and they know him. It's not, you know, they've heard a story about a guy. This is a guy that had been laid at the gate, beautiful. Um, since he was born, he had been lame. And so at some early age, he would have been put there to earn income, as it were, for his family, to beg for his food. Um, and so he's, they'd known him. So from a boy, they'd seen this lame uh, boy, obviously. And then as he grew older, this man... And uh, then and one day he's radically healed like this. No wonder they came running in, astound, in astonishment and wondering what had happened. And Peter's really quick to point out. Somebody's just logged onto the network and wanted me to share the password, but I'm not going to share it, okay? <laughs> um, Peter, uh, Peter's quick to point out that the, the power to heal him didn't come from himself or John. And that's why he says, why are you staring at us? As if from our power or our, our godliness, this Man has been made well, and, and especially the Jews should know better, hey? When, when a miracle takes place, to think that, like, hey, wow, there's something amazing about Peter or something amazing about John. No, no, says Peter. Actually, there's something amazing about this man, Jesus. That's the one that he wants to point them to. And um, I believe that, um, that, that the cross is something that is, that the cross has accomplished something objective. You know, sometimes when we, we think about the cross, we think about the subjective aspects of it, what, what it produces in us in terms of our feelings. We might look at the cross and see um, Jesus crucified on it and hear the story and be moved to think, wow, what an incredible display of love that is. And it is an incredible display of love. And in fact, Paul writes in another letter and says, like, can't you see that God, gave, having given His own Son, like, like He's given everything. Now, why would you not trust Him for all the other things that you need in your life as well? And, and we get stirred by it. But no one gets saved by feelings. Feelings stir us, but, but we have to come as a surrender of our will. And, and even our coming to God doesn't save us. Turning to God doesn't save you. Something objective needs to have happened in order for us having turned to be able to come to God. And I believe that when Christ died upon the cross, there was, a, there was something that was accomplished by Him on the cross. It wasn't just as an example to make us kind of go, oh, that God, He loves us so much. It cuts me deep, you know, how much He loves me. And it ought to affect us in the way. But that's not what Jesus was on the cross for. What we see in, this, in the Scripture here is that God ordained the death of Jesus Christ. It says, that he, what he foretold, what he promised to his prophets would happen, he fulfilled. So Peter's pointing the, the finger at those that are, that are they're responsible in, as, as, from an earthly point of view for putting Jesus on the cross. But he says that God used that to fulfill his purpose that he originally started on. And that only in the death of Jesus on the cross can our sins be blotted out. That is the basis for our forgiveness. And that theology is, is called by the theologians, either penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. And you don't need to remember those terms, but you, you might come across them. Which simply means that Jesus died on the cross in our place and bore our punishment, hence the word penal substitution. He died in our place, bore our punishment. And that bearing of a punishment atoned or paid for our sins and satisfied God Himself. 
This is what is taught in Isaiah 53 by the prophet. And the reason why I mention that is because Peter actually mentions uh, this term, calls Jesus um, his servant or the suffering, or yeah, his servant or the servant of God. And Isaiah 53 is actually a passage on the suffering servant. And you might say, well, I mean, it gets mentioned elsewhere. Actually, Jesus is only called by the title servant in, the, in this scripture that I read you and in the next chapter of Acts chapter 4. In all of the Bible, other than Isaiah, those are the places where he's referred to by that name. And so Peter obviously has in mind this chapter from Isaiah that prophesies about the Christ and how he would suffer on the cross and actually why he would suffer on the cross when he's preaching this message. And so Isaiah 53 verse 46 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We have turned everyone to his own way. Remember that term, turned, because we're going to come back to it just now, and it's quite important. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. One of the best illustrations of this I've seen is by Nicky Gumbel in his Alpha course. How many of you have done the Alpha course before? Let's have a quick show of hands. That's quite a, quite a number of you. It really is an outstanding course, even for a believer to do, just to, in a sense, get the, the, the basics of their faith put in place. But Nicky Gumbel... Um, uses this text where it says the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he says, this is us. And we, because of our sin, have become separated from God. And the sin is on us like like this Bible is upon my hand. And Jesus comes as our substitute like this. And God takes our sin and lays it upon Christ so that he becomes sin and we become righteous as we receive his finished work upon the cross. And so the, 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 that is the power of substitution, that Jesus comes not only as God, but as man as well, as a representative for us, as one of us. Hebrews speaks of him being a brother like us, so that God can take our sin and put it upon Jesus. And as, G, as Peter preaches this, he's making like a strong case. He's not holding back. He's one of those, kind of there's a, there's a fire in his belly as he's preaching this, you know. And he makes this case that his listeners are indisputably guilty for the death of Jesus. And he he calls him the holy and righteous one and the author of life. You, that's the one that you guys killed. And he's the servant Jesus. And he's he's referring back to Isaiah 53, as I said. And at the same time, he makes the case that the death of Jesus is first and foremost an act of the sovereign God. And so, like in Acts chapter 2, as Peter preaches, he puts the the responsibility for the death of Christ on those that are listening and, though, and the rulers of those people. He says, you delivered over and denied his servant Jesus. You denied the Holy One, the Holy and Righteous One. You killed the author of life. And some of them, I guess, would maybe, maybe some of them were going, like, not me. I, I wasn't even in Jerusalem that day. I was out of town on business. I, I didn't even know this even happened. If I'd been there, man, I would have I would have fought for him, you know, I would have fought for the author of life. And some of us, we, we put ourselves in the same boat. We kind of, like, no ways. I wouldn't be the one crucifying Jesus. I'd be the one crying, Hosanna, not crucify him. But Peter, when he preaches, this includes all of the people that are there. In fact, not only those that are there, but all the Jews and all of their rulers. 
And if the Gentiles were there, he would have included them in it as well. There's an Irish rock band called U2. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you are too young and you don't care about good music. Um, but anyway, in the um, outstanding album, Rattle and Hum, they've got a song on there called When Love Comes to Town. And uh, there's these lines in there that are, I can remember when I first heard them, that, like, they just jumped out at me. And it goes like this. I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side. And what the, the songwriters are saying there and what you two are saying is that was their bono, as they're singing the song is that I, like, even though I wasn't physically there, I was. I was there. I, I was participating in the death of Jesus. Like when, when the sword was pulled out, it was actually a spear. But anyway, it was stabbed into his side like this. It was, I was there. I was party to that. I, I um, was the soldier um, casting the dice to, to uh, gamble on the clothes of Jesus Christ. And we are guilty of crucifying Christ. And we can say with those that were standing there that I delivered over and denied this, his servant Jesus I denied the holy and the righteous one. I killed the author of life. Some people object to substitutionary atonement or penal substitution. And one very high-profile leader, church leader in, in the UK recklessly called it cosmic child abuse. And without understanding this, you can, you can in a sense, understand his case. So what he says is, it is, it is it's hard to believe or impossible to believe in his view that a God who is love could, cru could crucify, torture, and brutalize his own son to satisfy the need inside of himself for justice. The problem with that is that this man misses a few things, but he misses his own guilt. You see, apart from what Christ accomplished on the cross, our hostility, our, our enmity with God could not be overcome. Some people think, like, if I, if, I could just, if I could just persuade you of how kind God is, that you would, be, you would turn from being His enemy to, turn, to be a follower of God. But without um, Christ dying upon the cross, there is no way for our hearts to be changed. We do this thing with our children where we say, you know what you need? You need Jesus to come and live in your heart. And I understand why we say it. It's, it's a, we, we, we're simplifying things for our children. They're really small and we're trying to give them the sense of, of relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's actually really bad theology. Because children don't need Jesus to come live in their hard heart. They don't need Jesus to come and live in their sinful heart. What they need is a new heart. And it's only because of what Christ has done on the cross, what He has accomplished there by, by allowing us to be crucified with Him and then to be resurrected, that our, our sinful heart can be a hard heart, can be replaced by a new heart. And so what we should say to our children is, is uh, my beautiful son and daughter, or son or daughter, who I love with all of my heart, baby, you need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. Dad, how is that possible? Like Nicodemus asked, how can I be born again? Do I go a second time into my mother's womb? And you say, no, son, daughter, you're thinking in earthly way. I'm talking about the spiritual things. And you explain to them that, that we are sinners separated from God, and only because of what Christ has done can we receive that new heart. And what this church leader doesn't understand, that is without Christ having dealt with the sinfulness in us, we couldn't even turn to Jesus anyway. That example of Jesus dying on the cross and, and being an incredible picture of love has no way of changing us. Only His death, His objective death, can actually change us. The other thing that happens is that He misses 
the extreme gravity of sin. You see, sometimes we think that our sin is only a horizontal thing. Like, if I had to sin against Melvin and steal his watch or something like that, then he, might, he would be offended by me, and obviously he would be right because it would be unjust what I've done. But I think to myself, well, I've, I've hurt him, and I've betrayed him, and I've stolen something from him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Melvin and say, Melvin, I'm really so sorry. I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm so, so sorry, bro. Please won't you just, you know, feel better about it and trust me again. And look, I... They watch it you, that I stole from you. I've even gone and bought you a twice, twice as expensive one. I'm giving it back to you. And I will go, well, actually, that's fine, Rob. You know, it sounds like you made a mistake and you've made up for it. Let's just call it quits. And we think that sin is like that. Actually, sin is not like that. See, our sin has a horizontal aspect. It always affects the people around us. But mostly our sin is against God. And that's why David, when he sinned by committing adultery and murdering Uriah, is able to say something extraordinary when he says, I've sinned against you only, speaking to God, against you only have I sinned. I'm thinking, hey, dude, what about the guy you killed and his, the wife that you committed adultery with? Like, there's other people. And David's saying there is a horizontal reality, and that needs to be dealt with. But the primary sin is actually against the holy God. God made us. He made us to live in His universe. And when we sin, we break that vertical relationship with Him. And so there's no sweeping the sin under the carpet like this. God doesn't come and go, hey, Noel, you're a good guy. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The things that you've done, I'm just going to look aside on. And, and we're good. We, we sort it together. Well, the people that have been sinned against will cry and say, God, where is our justice? But more than that, and this is what we're going to get to now, is that God in Himself can't override His own justice. He can't suddenly become an unjust God. Because if God is unjust in overlooking sin and just sweeping it under the carpet, if He winks at someone and just says, I'm not going to count that, then how can we trust Him with anything? If He's unjust, then He could easily be a liar as well. And then everything that He tells us is not to be trusted. And so when we pull away the thread like this, we begin to unravel everything that we want to trust God for. In Isaiah 53 verse 10, it says something that is, I have to be honest, quite disturbing. When, I, when, I, when you read this and you think about what it means, it is hard to understand. And so you have to dig deeper. And it's what I want to do for a few minutes this morning, this afternoon. He says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The ESV says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so the, the death of Jesus... The, the, all that he went through in the crucifixion that we know well if we, if we spend any time understanding it, which was unbelievably brutal, was, part of the, was God's will for that to happen. It was God that was satisfied in the death. And it's, it's that that the leaders object to, that like, surely the God of love cannot, it's not him that actually wants Jesus to die on the cross. It wasn't him that wanted Jesus to suffer in the way that he was suffering. And yet Isaiah tells us it was the will of God that he should be bruised, that he should be punished in that way. Surely we think it was something else. It was the devil who held us hostage. He was the one that, that forced God to offer his son in that way. Or it was the moral law of the universe. You know, God made the world and he's, it's, it's, he's put a moral law in it and it's all going to tip out of balance and we're going to end up in some sort of some weird sci-fi thing where the whole universe will explode on itself if the, if the moral law isn't balanced out. But it's not. It's God himself who has to be satisfied in this. And so John Stott argues that satisfaction is an appropriate word. I want to read this quote. It's a little long, but just follow closely. It ends, with a, it ends powerfully. He says, Satisfaction is an appropriate word, providing we realize 
realize that it is He Himself and His inner being who needs to be satisfied and not something external to Himself. The talk of law, honor, justice, and the moral order is true only insofar as these are seen as expressions of God's own character. Atonement is a necessity because it arises from within God Himself. To say that He must satisfy Himself means that He must be Himself and act according to the perfection of His nature or name. The necessity of satisfaction for God, therefore, is not found in anything outside of Himself, but within Himself, in His own immutable, which just means unchangeable, character. It is an inherent or intrinsic necessity. The law to which He must conform, which He must satisfy, is the law of His own being. This is the powerful part. God is God. He never deviates one iota, even one tiny hair's breadth, from being entirely Himself. And that means the way God chooses to forgive sinners and reconcile them to Himself must, first and foremost, be consistent with His own character. And so God is just. God is love, and God is just. And the cross, the the horizontal and the vertical of that point is the meeting point of God's love and His justice together. And it's not just the Father. It wasn't like the Father kind of bent Jesus' arm behind His back and threw Him out of heaven like this and said, okay, I'm sending you, go down the cross. It wasn't just the Father that satisfied. Within the Godhead, this perfect unity. Jesus also burns in hatred towards sin. Jesus also uh, yearns to have justice fulfilled, even as He, like His Father, yearns with love for us. And Jesus is also satisfied. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, He, speaking of Jesus, remembers a prophecy about him in Isaiah. He shall see the labor of his soul, which is in the context of the chapter is the cross, and be satisfied. He shall see the labor of his soul. He shall see the cross and be satisfied. Not just the Father, but the Son is also satisfied at the cross. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so it's not just the justice of God that is satisfied, but the love of God that is satisfied as well at the cross. In verse 19, Peter says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And so the response to what Christ has done for us on the cross, how do we receive that? Is through repentance and faith, Peter says. Repent and turn back. Repentance is, is not just this kind of cerebral act that we go through. You know what? It was wrong for me to do that. I'm going to now do the right thing. And sometimes we can become right quite rational about it. Like you, you go, you're speeding, for example. I don't know if any of you have ever been pulled over by a police officer. It's happened to me once <laughs> or a fr- few times before, unfortunately. And uh, when, I don't argue with the police officer because he's right. I've, I've broken the law, and, but I'm not really as sorry as uh, you might think. It was, there was a reason normally why it would have happened in that situation. And so I know I'm wrong and I accept that I'm wrong, but I'm not I'm not cut to the heart. Otherwise, you know, you know what I'm saying? But when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, a similar thing, it says they were cut to the heart. The King James Version says they were stung by what happened. And this, there is a, there's a sense of, of, of owning personally what it is that I've done and, and coming under the conviction um, for my sin. And that's what repentance means. It means that God cuts you to your heart. And so even this morning as we have an opportunity in a short while to receive Christ our Lord and Savior, repentance isn't like, yeah, I suppose he was right. It's, it's the deep work of the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to actually 
we're walking this way to turn around and walk this way, to walk in rebellion to God, to now t- turn and walk in, in fellowship with God and, and, and submission to His ways. And then he says, turn back. So repent and turn back. And by turn back, he means come in faith to God to receive what Christ has done. All of your tears and crying and repenting cannot save you one iota. If Christ hadn't died on the cross, it wouldn't matter what you did. I was preaching in, in, um, in, in uh, whatever the town, in Yati, and I was talking about how we separated by God by a canyon. So like I get to this edge here and the God's like to the back wall, then I've got to somehow get to him. Like, like, but, this, but the problem is with this canyon, when I fall into it, I die because it's got spiky, jabby things like this sticking out and, ah, and I'm, I'm stuck. It says in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. And so like I'm looking like, ah, that looks really bad. I need to get there. I can't stay here. I've got to get there. What do I do? And so we try all sorts of ways. I'm going to take a run up now, you know, so you're really null. So we run like this, and we jump, and I jump as far as I could. I, like, and you know, even with my springy legs, I'm probably only going to, maybe I'll get to Kevin. If I, no, I don't think I'd even get there. If I did a stage dive, should we do that? I'm going to stage dive. You catch me. Okay, you guys ready? I'm serious. Hey, here I come. You ready? <laughs> you guys didn't even move. Not even an effort. But I could, I could try as hard as I want. I'm not getting to the other side. All my, all my efforts on my own is not going to get me to salvation. All my, oh, I'm so sorry, Jesus. I really shouldn't have done that. My, my repeated confessions, I could buy myself a little whip and beat myself in the back every time I sinned. And it's still not going to get me in heaven. I could, I could give away all my money to anybody around me. Like, if you need money, come to Rob Hutton. I'll, I'll dish out until the wallet's empty or whatever. It's not going to get me there. See, the Bible says that we are separated by our sin. And so Christ comes and He stands in that place. He stands in that place of death and He extends His arms upon the cross. And He becomes a bridge that we, we walk across to get to salvation. See, it's only through Jesus that we are saved. It doesn't matter how you feel about the cross. It doesn't matter what you think about the, their theology. It's like there is no way we can save ourselves other than the, there's no way we can save ourselves. The only way to be saved is by what Christ has accomplished. And the only way to receive it is through repentance and faith. And Peter's preaching this. And he's not preaching like theology. I'm not teaching you today either. Because Peter understood about forgiveness. You see, Peter had denied Christ. When Peter, I wonder what he felt when he said those words. When you denied, and he kind of heard an echo, so did you, Peter. When you denied the Holy and Righteous One. So did you, Peter. Do you remember? Remember when he was, he said to Jesus, it doesn't matter what, Lord. If they come for you, they've got to come through me. If they stab you, they've got to stab me. I'm there by your side. The moment the trouble came, you one of him. You one of them. You're a follower of Jesus. I don't know him. No, no, you are. Stuff you, he says. The Bible says he cursed. He called on a curse. I don't know him. Walked out. The rooster crowed as Jesus prophesied, and Jesus looks across at him. He denied Jesus. But remember before he did that, Jesus said to him, Satan has come and asked to sift you. And he said to him, you will, you will fall, but when you turn back, when you turn back. You see, and Isaiah said, we've all turned to our own way. We've turned from our relationship with God to our own way, to rebellion. And God, to come in faith and repentance is to turn back again to God, to rely upon Him and that's what Peter did. He turned back. He remembers in John 21, we read how, how Jesus came to him 
and uh, called him off his boat. He had made, a, he'd made a, a braai on the beach, a barbecue on the beach. He was cooking some fish. I love that about Jesus. He's cooking fish. The resurrected Christ is cooking fish on the beach to feed Peter so that he can restore him. So that times of refreshing may come. And so Peter preaches this as out of a personal revelation that he has, that he has been saved, that he has been forgiven. My friends, the power of forgiveness, to to have guilt ripped off us, to have our sins removed, to to have it blotted away as, as, um, as Peter has described, is the gift that God gives us. Won't the worship team come up, please? And won't the guys that are in communion start handing out the elements? Verse 20, Peter says this. He says, repent and turn that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The wonderful thing about coming to salvation in Christ is that our, um, our past is redeemed. You know, it says that this man was lame from birth. Some people would have pointed at him and said, look, I wonder if he's lame because his parents sinned. I wonder, I wonder what's wrong that he is, uh, is sinful. Others would have... Uh, would have, uh, that he's lame. Others would have pointed him and said, this is so unfair. This is, like, how come this is the guy, like, like how come he's lame? How come I'm walking? This, this just seems so unjust. But Jesus heals him from that. Friends, I don't know what your past is. I don't know what your story is. I don't know if you're, you come out of a, a broken home. I don't know if you have been the victim of terrible injustice in the past. I heard the story about a, a man who was conceived when his mother was raped. And how Jesus came in and redeemed his past. He goes right back. And everything that was wrong about this man, and Peter says, he is now perfectly healthy. As we come to Christ, as we come to this cross, as we come to this table, God wants to work back in our lives and redeem our past. And friends, He wants to come and He wants to completely shift our future. See, this man's future was as a beggar. He'd been put outside the gates. His friends carried him and left him outside the gates. Do you know what that gate was, that where he was left? Do you know what the name of the gate was? Gate Beautiful. It was one of the gates of the temple. The temple of the living God, not the temple of some powerless God, not a temple of false God, but the temple of the living God. And yet he was put there to beg. I chatted with a man this week and I said to him, I said, my friend, you're a survivor. You know how to survive. You're like a, I said to him, you're like a cockroach in a nuclear blast, you know. I believe, I hear, if I remember some stories when I was growing up, that cockroaches can survive a nuclear blast. They're like hardy, hardy creatures. Some of us are like that. Bring it on, baby. doesn't matter what I face. I'm going to get through this thing. I'm going to survive because I am a survivor. This man was a survivor. He would go to the gates and he would beg. He would do whatever he needed to do to get through another day. But the gospel brings us into the temple. It doesn't leave us at the gate. The gospel invites us to become not survivors, but sons and daughters of the living God because of what Christ accomplished there.